He would teach us this afternoon. Our scripture reading comes first from Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs 5, and we'll read that entire chapter. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, How I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So far from Proverbs 5. Let's also turn to the New Testament to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, and we'll read verses 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, 
who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So far, the word of God. As we reflect on what we've read, let's sing together from Psalm 1, all stanzas. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of the Christian, uh, the Christian faith and Christian doctrine. And we find ourselves this afternoon in Lord's Day 41, that's on page 556. This is also part of our series of studies on the Ten Commandments. There the question is, what does the Seventh Commandment teach us? That all unchastity is cursed by God. We must therefore detest it from the heart and live chaste and disciplined lives both within and outside of holy marriage. Does God in this commandment forbid nothing more than adultery and similar shameful sins? Since we, body and soul, are temples of the Holy Spirit, it is God's will that we keep ourselves pure and holy. Therefore, He forbids all unchaste acts, gestures, words, thoughts, desires, and whatever may entice us to unchastity. So far from the Heidelberg Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, if I were to, hypothetically, I'm not going to do this, if I were to send out a survey to the congregation asking which of God's commandments do you struggle with the most, I suspect that probably more of us would say the seventh commandment than with any other commandment. Now, whether that's really true or not is not the point. Perhaps we struggle with other commandments more than we Uh, realize, but even still, the seventh commandment, uh, along with all of the the root forms we saw last week, there's the surface sin, and there's all the sin that's underneath, the the so-called, the iceberg underneath. Uh, When you take all of those into account, the seventh commandment presents a tremendous struggle to almost every single Christian. There's a number of reasons for that. Uh, For one thing, we we do live in an extremely sexualized culture where images are constantly being flashed in front of us and messages are communicated to us to entice us in in sexual ways such that it it seems already just taking that into account almost impossible uh, to keep ourselves pure in the way that God would have us be pure. Music, movies, advertisement, the internet constantly bombard us with sexual images and and ideas that may or may not even be realistic, uh, but that entice us and and play around in our minds and stir up sexual desire within us. This makes the Seventh Commandment an extremely difficult commandment to keep uh, in, in the Christian life. And that's true for both men and women. But it certainly isn't just our culture. We, we can't simply blame the music, the movies, the TV, YouTube, the advertisements, as if all of our sexual sins and sexual struggles would just go away if, if the world didn't keep bombarding us with these things. Uh, it's true, they, they certainly compound the, the difficulty of the struggle, but it's a struggle that exists there in our hearts 
regardless. And it's a struggle that's been there throughout history. Technology changes, but the human heart remains the same. We can see this in Proverbs 5, as Solomon warns his son about immoral women. And I'm sure that as, as we read that already, there's, there's not a man in this room who doesn't understand the, the challenge that Solomon and his son are being faced with, and, and the enticement that Solomon is warning about. Her lips drip with honey. We, we understand there's an enticement there. Uh, the book of Proverbs uh, we can recognize is, is immediately relevant, uh, and obviously so, also in our time. Now, so this isn't just a feature of our day, it's a reality of the human condition and fallen human experience. Uh, we recognize that, that sexual desire and romantic desire is by far the most powerful desire that God has given us. And that, as far as that goes, is simply part of God's natural design. We'll look at that in, in just a moment. But that means that when that desire is twisted or wrongly directed, it, it can create an immense and, and seemingly impossible struggle within the human heart, especially for a Christian who, who wants to serve God and yet is faced with a desire within himself or herself that is contrary to God's will and yet seems almost irresistible. That makes it especially, I should also add, a struggle for young people and a particular struggle for parents of young people because when your your kids hit their early teens and suddenly discover in themselves a more powerful desire than they've ever had to deal with before, if they're not deeply grounded in their faith and, and have also a close relationship with their parents, that desire so quickly overpowers everything else, such that faith and and purity and even just plain logic all fall by the wayside. Well, the reaction that that many churches and and many Christian parents have had to that reality, especially when confronted with uh, young people uh, that that, uh, they're afraid of, that they don't know how to manage, the reaction has often been to essentially warn young people that, that sex is bad, and so just, just stay away from it. And this can lead to a belief in people that, that sex itself is evil. That's understandable when you consider the, the, the many devastating and terrible consequences of sexual immorality, uh, including adultery and, and premarital sex. On the physical side, there are STDs, gonorrhea, syphilis, herpes, HIV, AIDS, the list goes on and on. And on the spiritual and emotional side, there's brokenness, despair, loss of self-worth, family dysfunction, so much brokenness that falls from disobedience to this commandment. It's interesting, the the, the U.S. Navy, in their uh, training manuals, this at least was several decades ago. I doubt it's the, the, the same today. But they, they used to have a chapter all devoted to staying away from bad women uh, in, in the U.S. Navy manual. And, and it would have in that chapter these horrible pictures, uh, graphic pictures of syphilis and gonorrhea and all sorts of STDs that they, they figured would, would scare people away from, from those bad women. And probably it worked to some degree. And you can actually see something similar here in Proverbs 5 with respect to sexual immorality and prostitution. If you read uh, chapter, chapter 5 with me, you saw these things. He says, Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest... 
Here comes a warning. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. Uh, It's working there with the consequences, the the terrible consequences that flow from disobedience to this commandment. And and there's a right place for using that to warn ourselves and and our children. Uh, Paul also talks in Romans 1 uh, regarding homosexuality, how those who practice it receive in their bodies the penalty for their error. And yet, on the whole, Scripture does not simply take the the easy approach of, of simply labeling all sex as bad. Other religions do that. They, they call it a base desire, a less spiritual uh, reality, and, and it's simply something that is, that is bad or gross. And that's how they, they teach their young people to stay away from all the bad things uh, that come from it. Instead, what God's Word teaches us is that sexual desire as such is a gift from God and a gift that is good. In Genesis 1, God made them male and female and commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, It it is a gift, uh, but it is a a precious and a sacred gift, a desire that was made exclusively for the relationship of marriage. That's what we also see here in Proverbs 5. Let your fountain be blessed. Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe, Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be always intoxicated with her love. Now, uh, I said last week when we we work through, as we struggle through the Ten Commandments, uh, one of the things that we learn is that there is always, uh, for every negative prohibition, there is always an implied positive command. And the Catechism usually does a good job of, of bringing that out for us to see on the seventh commandment, the, the catechism is somewhat weak on, its, uh, on the positive side of the commandments as it focuses almost entirely on, on what is uh, prohibited but doesn't speak to what God commands for marriage. But we do well to, to consider the positive command as well. We don't want to miss what God commands us with regard to our sexual desires and, and sexual relationships. And and that should really be our starting point this afternoon, to look at what God intends for the marriage relationship. And when we understand that, we far better understand also the damage of breaking this commandment. Now, the the language of Proverbs 5 is is actually quite uh, striking. Look at what it says. You all know that, that drunkenness is forbidden by, by, by the Bible in many places. And here is the one place in Scripture where men are actually commanded to get drunk. It says, be always intoxicated with her love. And, and that's not just a, a manner of speaking either. God has so designed uh, men and women that, that sexual and romantic desires and involvement create powerful also chemical and neurological uh, processes at the, at the level of our brains, at the level of our bodies, that form deep and addictive bonds uh, between husband and wife. And that, as far as that goes, is part of, of God's perfect design. 
Husband and wife are designed, body and soul, to be addicted to one another's love. And when that happens in the context of a, of a good marriage, a loving marriage, it is a beautiful and good thing. It's part of the creation that God looked at and, and said uh, that it was very good. And so we want to recognize that, that sexual relationships are part of God's perfect design. From the very beginning, God made them male and female and blessed them and, and called it a good thing. Uh, Genesis 1 says, and, and the Lord Jesus reaffirms this also in Matthew 5, uh, that a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's the way that God made it to be. And so we want to then begin our thinking by asking, why did God make us this way? Now, obviously, at least one biblical answer to that question is, uh, is that God made us this way for the purpose of, of raising up children. Uh, Malachi chapter 2 says, God made the husband and wife one, and he did this because he was seeking godly offspring. So that's certainly a, a good biblical reason. Only the, the stable relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife provides a, a safe context where children can be raised in the fear of the Lord and, and nurtured in the knowledge of God. Uh, children need a father and mother. So God made us this way for, for one thing, to provide that kind of loving context for the raising of children. And yet, the marriage relationship serves an even more fundamental purpose than creating a space for raising children. And for that, we want to remember the very purpose for which God created us. We've seen this several times as we've, excuse me, as we've worked through the Ten Commandments. Uh, the reason that God made us. And we sang it also this morning in Psalm 100. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. and We are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. So enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him and bless His name. The most fundamental purpose for which we were created, uh, besides uh, simply out of the overflow of God's love, the purpose that God made us for is that we would know Him, love Him, and live with Him to His praise and glory. And that's the first purpose for which marriage was also created. The Catechism also says it in Lord's Day 3, God created us to know Him, love Him, and live with Him. And that means that every feature of human existence has been designed with that purpose in mind, to help us to know our God, to love Him, and to live with Him in such a way that He is praised and glorified by us. Uh, We are made in the image of God, and part of what that means is we're made with a heart that longs to know our Creator and to have relationship with Him. And... God gave us all of our human relationships then for the purpose that we would help one another, Christian friendships, Christian parents, as well as husbands and wives, would help one another to know their God, to love Him, and to live with Him. If that's true then of of friendships in general, it's all the more true of the most intimate friendship of all, which is marriage. Uh, And that's what marriage is at its heart. It's a friendship. 
Two friends walking along together in service to God. The bride says of her husband in Song of Songs, uh, chapter 5, verse 16, He is my lover and he is my friend. That's what marriage is. The, The marriage relationship is a friendship relationship. And yet it's the most intimate and unique of human friendships. It's only within the relationship of marriage that husband and wife can be naked and not ashamed. Uh, They have the unique privilege within that special covenant of marriage to see one another exactly as they are, not just physically, but also spiritually, to know one another as nobody else in the world knows them. Uh, They have the privilege of living together in intimacy day after day. And it means they they can know each other better than anyone else in the world. In fact, husbands and wives often testify to this. They say, uh, a husband would say, my wife knows me better than I know myself. Uh, They're able to see one another's strength and beauty, but also one another's flaws and blemishes and weaknesses and failures and yet still within that covenant to love one another unconditionally uh, and uh, because of the vows that they have made to one another before God. And they can have then the most intimate of friendships where it is safe to know one another as they truly are and serve one another then in that relationship to help each other on the road of sanctification, to know their God, to love Him, and to live with Him. Uh, Marriage is a unique friendship that makes that help, that service to one another possible more powerfully than in any other relationship. That's also why, of course, Scripture commands us to marry only in the Lord, or in other words, only to other believers. Uh, Because friendship uh, involves Two friends walking together on, on the, towards the same destination, on the same road, to the same place. Uh, if one of you doesn't love the Lord, you're going in different directions. It's a marriage that at its heart is already uh, broken. You're not going together, but you're walking away from each other. One of you is going to God, the other is in rebellion against Him. That is a marriage that cannot work. Uh, your life purposes are, are completely different. And so the Bible commands single people and widows and widowers that if they are going to marry, they must marry in the Lord because of this most fundamental purpose for marriage, which is for husband and wife to grow together in their knowledge, their love, and their relationship with the Lord. Uh, so so that's the, the most fundamental purpose then for which God has created our, our human sexuality and, and marriage so that husband and wife w- would love one another uh, with the love of God and then help one another to know God, love Him, and live with Him. And, and then the delight, uh, Proverbs 5 talks about the delight and, and the pleasure of that marriage relationship that is like intoxication. It happens uh, within that relationship. It's there by design to seal that bond of love. That's what sexuality is meant to be, a seal that holds together the bond of love. That's also why Paul teaches us in Ephesians 5 that that marriage uh, is not only a friendship, it's also a parable. It's also a picture, an illustration of the relationship between Christ and His church. And he calls this a profound mystery. 
See, as husband and life, excuse me, husband and wife enjoy one another and love one another, they become a picture of Christ's love and enjoyment of his church and his church's reciprocal love and enjoyment of him. Uh, the marriage itself becomes a picture of something that lasts for eternity. Marriage lasts for a lifetime. It's a picture of that which lasts forever, that which is far greater. Now, we can see then, if we consider all this, this is God's purpose then for marriage. Here's the positive of the commandment. Be intoxicated with your husband or your wife. We can see then why God takes adultery so seriously. God has made marriage to be an exclusive relationship where husband and wife have bound themselves together by covenant to be devoted exclusively to one another. And that means nobody else is permitted to come into that relationship. To do so would, would destroy both the intimacy of the relationship by betraying trust and it would destroy the parable, the picture of that relationship by teaching lies about the faithfulness of Christ or His church. Uh, the, the Song of Solomon talks about the, the sexual relationship between husband and wife, uh, and it uses the terms of a beautiful garden, a garden that is fenced off from outsiders. To invite anyone else into that relationship is to trample down, to break that fence, and to allow that person then to trample down the garden. The fence is there to protect the garden. The fence is not there to keep us from that which is good, but to protect that which is good and sacred and valuable. You build fences, after all, around things that you value. Uh, We put our our wallet into a safe if we go into a hotel because it's something that we value. We put a barrier around it. And we do this also, and God has done this, for marriage so that there would be a, a protection around that relationship. And the reason is because our sexuality is valuable in God's eyes. Our sexuality touches our very soul. God made it to be that way so that we would touch one another's souls within the context of marriage in a way that is for blessing. But outside of that marriage, it is damaging. Uh, Within a God-centered marriage, it's a blessing, but outside of that marriage, it's a path for Satan to enter our hearts and destroy us. That's why sexual sin has such a profound effect and consequence on us. Solomon says of the the adulterous woman in Proverbs 5, her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. Sheol is the Hebrew word that that refers to death and the underworld. And and so many people who who have sinned sexually or been sinned against sexually can can speak about that experience like an underworld, like a place of, of darkness and emptiness. Uh, So Solomon also warns us then in the text that we read, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. The idea here is of a a fountain or a spring that is protected by a wall so that it doesn't go out and flow out into the streets and the sewers and thereby become polluted. That's the image that Solomon uses then for sexuality. It's not for strangers. It's meant to be guarded and protected 
And only then can it remain pure and life-giving and wholesome. Having said that, then let me define adultery, since that's our our surface sin. Adultery is a, a sexual relationship between someone who is married and someone else who is not their spouse. It's not the same thing then as sexual immorality. We'll get to what that is in a moment. Uh, adultery is between a married person and someone who is not their spouse. Uh, so adultery is breaking the fence around a garden that has been protected by God and inviting someone to come in and trample that garden. Adultery is breaking the trust in the most intimate and trusting relationship. Now, it's important to recognize, too, that adultery as such is not merely physical. It can also be emotional. This is where a husband or wife develops an inappropriate emotional relationship with someone of the opposite sex. Uh, Men can easily be seduced by by the visual and the physical, uh, while women are, are often more tempted by the emotional and relational. And it can be just as devastating to have an extramarital uh, emotional relationship that does not that that is not appropriate, and it can often also lead to physical adultery. the The heart of adultery is breaking that trust by inviting someone else into that place that is sacred between you and your wife. Now, the lie the lie that's told in our day is it's two consenting adults, and and so it doesn't hurt anybody else. How many spouses who have been betrayed would say that that's true, that it doesn't hurt anybody else? How many of you who've had a parent who's committed adultery would say that it's, it's just two consenting adults and doesn't hurt anyone else? The truth is, adultery leaves a long trail of destruction and damage in its wake. God has made our, our sexuality, again, to be such a powerful force that lives so deep and so close to our very souls. And in the context of marriage, that's a blessing. And it creates a place that is safe and joyful also, also for the raising of children. But outside of that context, it will bring pollution and death, not only for those who commit it, but also for others involved and very often for the children that are involved. Sometimes that even comes physically in the form of STDs being passed on to the faithful spouse and then on to the children. That's why in the Old Testament, adultery was punished by death. There was a death penalty for adultery because it creates a cycle of death, both for those committing it and for the others that are, that are inadvertently involved. And even in the New Testament, though there may not be a death penalty, the state has the right to enforce such a thing, and, and Christian countries have done so before, But even if there is not, we recognize that in the New Testament, if adultery is not confessed and repented of before God, it is still punishable by hell, which is far worse than death. Not only does it destroy the lives of others, it spits in the face of God. It must be confessed and repented of. Now, the Catechism speaks about, or excuse me, the Seventh Commandment speaks directly about adultery, But the Catechism also recognizes, rightly, that this implies, this has implications for other forms of sexual immorality that are also forbidden. That includes sex outside of marriage, uh, homosexuality, transgenderism, voyeurism, peeping toms, sexting, also pornography. 
is adultery in the eyes of God. The Lord Jesus taught that whoever looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery in his heart. What this means is that adultery is first and foremost, before it's a matter of the hands or the body, it's a matter of the heart. The only difference between a heart that's willing to look lustfully and a heart that's willing to act on that lust is opportunity and circumstance. Those are the only differences. Opportunity to act and ability to get away with it. Acted out adultery is, of course, far more devastating than, than, than merely fantasized adultery. But behind it, God recognizes, and Jesus here recognizes, the exact same heart. That cons- and, and God considers it then just as sinful. Whoever looks on a woman or a man with lust commits adultery in his or her heart. Now, obviously, one implication of Jesus' words here then is pornography has no place within the Christian life. According to a survey in uh, 2014, almost 80%, 79% of 18 to 30-year-old men say they view pornography at least once a month, and and 63% say that they view pornography several times a week. And the statistics are only barely different for women. 76% of women uh, 18 to 30 years old say they see pornography at least once a month. Uh, Pornography is is typically thought of as a a man's problem, but usage by women is not at all uncommon, and it's on the rise. Uh, Men typically view different kinds of porn, graphic and visual porn, where women are attracted to romantic or erotic porn. Uh, Men and women are different in that respect, but sexual sin is present in both cases. Uh, this is why it's important also to, to recognize that romantic and erotic books can also be a form of pornography. And just then, just as it is a lie to say that acted out adultery is, is merely between two consenting adults and, and doesn't harm anyone else, so it is a lie to say that pornography is harmless. It is not Harmless. It profoundly harms our marriages. It profoundly undermines uh, our marriages. It, it is also often harmful to those, always not often, always harmful to those who watch it. At a neurological level, it rewires the brain into sinful and evil and destructive ways of thinking. Uh, there's one study that uh, showed uh, that, that pornography consumption is associated with, with six trends. Uh, six primary trends among others, increased marital distress and risk of separation and divorce, decreased marital intimacy, infidelity, uh, increased appetite for more graphic pornography, uh, devaluation of monogamy, marriage, and also child-rearing, and an increasing number of people struggling with compulsive and addictive sexual behavior. Pornography is harmful. On top of that, of course, Pornography is directly connected to the sex trade. And, and most of the women that are seen on the screen were themselves sexually abused as children, are often heavily addicted to drugs. Many of them are now dead. They're not even alive anymore. And many others are often kept in slavery or traded for money. Every time someone watches pornography, they are directly participating in an evil, satanic 
demonic sex trade. They are generating revenue, even if it's free, through the ads, they are generating revenue for a system uh, that is evil at its core. And they share every bit of guilt for the abuse and the slavery that is there in that system. It goes without saying that of all the works of darkness, pornography least belongs within a Christian home. It is partaking in and directly funding one of Satan's darkest works, the most horrible of all the abuses that Christ came and died to bring to an end. I said a moment ago that the Lord Jesus taught us that if anyone looks on a woman with lust, he commits adultery with her in his heart. And if that means anything, it certainly also includes pornography. And here we want to hear the words also of of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. He says, Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Understand me clear on this. I'm not saying, and nor is Paul, that it's your outward obedience that makes you a Christian or disqualifies you from being a Christian. If that was true, then, then Christ died for nothing. All of us are sinners. All of us are guilty. But Paul's point is, what about now as Christians who have been bought by the blood of Christ? Is this still what your life looks like. And if so, if you're not confessing these sins, if you're not fighting against these sins with all your might, you are deceived if you think that you are indeed a Christian. He says, such lives will not lead to inheriting the kingdom of God. That's what the Lord Jesus said too, right? Many, many will stand before me on that day and, and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all sorts of things in your name, casting out prophets or or casting out demons and, and such things? And he will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. That kind of hypocrisy is easy to commit. That's why the, the, the New Testament warns us the way it does. The Lord Jesus also said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to be thrown into hell. And if your right eye causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter hell with one eye than with, than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where the fire never goes out. Now the reason that we, we don't go cutting off our hands or gouging out our eyes is because we recognize that our hands and our eyes aren't ultimately what cause us to sin. It's our heart. And yet Jesus' point still stands. No measure taken against sin is ever too radical. There is never too great a measure to take to deal with sin. If there there is something in your life that causes you to stumble, you must cut it off, remove it, get rid of it. If having a smartphone in in your home causes you to sin, get rid of it. If having a computer in a private place within your home causes you to sin, get rid of it or move it to somewhere where it can be seen. If being in a certain workplace even, as as necessary as it is to work, if being in a certain workplace makes it, humanly speaking, impossible not to sin, then you need to change jobs. After all, what's, uh, what's better, to have the smartphone, the computer, and the workplace and be thrown into hell? or to live without those and inherit eternal life. For that matter, if it's your pride 
that keeps you from confessing your sin and letting Christ deal with it, cut it off. Because it's better to enter life humbled without your pride than to enter, enter hell proud and, and having been able to hold on to that pride as you go into eternal torment. The Lord Jesus is calling us to radical measures. Your very life, your eternal life is at stake. For those of us then who are struggling with this sin, uh, cutting it off also means then swallowing your pride, confessing your sin first to God, but then also to your fellow Christians who can hold you accountable. It means as a Christian, standing at the foot of the cross, your shame having been taken away from you and going and getting the help that you need. Confess your sin. Contact your elder or a godly Christian friend. Go join Life Renewal uh, this winter or go and seek counseling. We're now a member of, of a pact with the Christian Counseling Center. You can go there for free, free of charge, and go anonymously and get the help that you need. If you need the help, get it. You cannot tolerate the sin any longer. James says in, I believe it's James 5, Uh, to, To him who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, it is sin. And if you cannot bring yourself to do it, if you cannot bring yourself to go and get the help you need and you you still believe that, that somehow you can fight the fight on your own, let me make a suggestion. Job says in, in Job 31, I've made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a, a woman with lust. I want to focus on that word covenant. Uh, here's my suggestion. If you believe, I think you're wrong, but if you believe that you can fight this fight on your own without Christian help, then make a vow, make a covenant before God, not that you'll never fall again. It's a stupid vow. And then you'll just end up breaking two sins instead of one, or committing two sins instead of one. Instead, make a vow, write it down, say it out loud, that if you should fall, which means you're not winning this fight, if you should fall, that you will go and get the help that same day. At least then, it'll put that belief that you can fight the fight on your own, it'll put that belief to the test. Instead of allowing that belief to enable you to go on and... uh, to go on living in your sin day after day saying, I can win this when you know you can't. If you believe you can win it, make a vow to God that if you should fall, you'll go and get the help you need. At least then you will do it. Now, if you do, if you do make such a vow, then know that God will not forget your vow, nor, I believe, will he let you forget it, at least if you are indwelt with his Holy Spirit. Because he tells us he will not Hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. You might go for days or perhaps weeks pretending that you didn't make the vow, but you will never forget it. And every single day afterwards will be like like David's life in Psalm 32, where he says uh, there in the first verses, uh, verse 3 and 4, When I kept silent about my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. God will not let you forget your vow. Now, obviously, this is not something to do lightly. God does mean it when he says that he will not hold him who takes his name in vain guiltless. So don't take his name in vain. If you take it, if you do take his name, know you must then fulfill your vow. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Though there is is forgiveness 
but as long as it is ongoing, it is disobedience. Now, again, I far sooner would urge any one of you who's struggling with this sin, I far sooner would urge you to go and get the help that you need. There's no shame in that other than the shame that is common to every Christian, and it's a shame that has been taken by our Savior and nailed to the cross. But whatever you do, do take the radical measure of cutting off that sin. Uh, Do not let it take you to eternity without Christ. It is better to enter life through much pain and shame and humiliation than to be thrown out with Satan and his demons into eternal torment. So I urge you who are struggling or you who may have already given up in the fight against this sin, come clean, confess it, let Christ deal with it. And he will, he will deal with it. Obviously there's much more that that could and should be said about this subject than I can possibly cram into a single sermon. I'm thinking next time we go through the catechism, perhaps we spend several weeks on, on this commandment. Just a suggestion. I also recognize that, uh, that we've really only focused on, on marriage, since that's the, the, the uh, surface sin in the commandment, or the breaking of marriage. And, and that means we've, we've left some things out that should also be said to single people. It's important to recognize that even though God has made us male and female in order to bless us through that unique relationship of marriage, uh, that relationship is still only a parable and a shadow. It's meant to point to the most intimate relationship of all, which is with Christ. That's important to emphasize, but it's a sermon in its own right. But I want to close by addressing those of you who are living with the guilt or the shame of sexual sin. That includes both those who have sinned sexually as well as those who have been sinned against sexually. God, as as I said before, designed our human souls, our our human sexuality, uh, to to touch our very souls in, in such a way that nothing else can. And God did that for our blessing. He made us male and female and called it very good. Uh, He made us that way so we would be blessed by it. But after the fall into sin, that also means that sexual immorality and and being sinned against sexually can touch our souls with evil and pollution in a way that no other sin can. Uh, Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. This is why sexual uh, guilt and shame is so often connected with things like depression, night terrors, suicidal behavior. And sadly, this is true not only for those who are guilty, but also for those who have been sinned against. Uh, It's an abuse of the most intimate and the most precious and the most vulnerable part of who we are, and it affects us in profound ways. Remember again, I quoted uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9 earlier, where Paul says that the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, and then he gives a long list of, uh, of sexual sins there. Whatever one of us needs to know is the thing that Paul says immediately after, which is, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
Now, those who have been sinned against, of course, have no need for forgiveness for that uh, because they're not the ones who who have sinned. Uh, But such is the nature of sexual sin that they will nonetheless feel a deep pollution and shame that reaches them and profoundly affects who they are and, and affects their lives. The gift of sexuality that God gave them for blessing was taken by someone and used to injure and destroy it's what makes sexual abuse such a uniquely evil sin because one not only harms oneself but profoundly harms another. What every one of us needs to know is that in Christ there is forgiveness and there is also cleansing and washing from the guilt and shame of sin, including sexual sin. The blood of Christ, the Son of God, shed on the cross is even more powerful than the guilt of sin. Sexual sin may touch our very souls, but the blood of Christ goes even deeper, cleansing our entire being. You think of the lepers, right, in Christ's day, who, who uh, according to the law, were unclean. They were not even allowed to touch anyone else. And, what ha- and, and yet when Christ touched them, instead of their pollution going to Christ, Christ's purity went to them and cleansed them. They became clean. That's what the blood of Christ does for every sinner. And oh, how we all need it. The blood of Christ washes us from guilt and shame uh, and the stain of sexual sin. And the blood of Christ also begins the change within us, the change to true holiness and godliness. Uh, For those of us who, who are married, and, and who have been sinned against with, this respect, uh, with respect to this commandment, we recognize also the blood of Christ makes it possible to forgive and to heal. And for those of us who have sinned against others, the blood of Christ makes it possible not only to be forgiven, but also with His Holy Spirit, it, uh, the blood of Christ makes it possible for us to face our sin, to name it, to confess it, and to be truly sanctified from it, to be changed. Confession needs to happen, but confession is only the beginning. What we need to know, though, is that Christ is able to make that change take place. Christ bought us, not only just to forgive us, but also to make us new. The Spirit's work of renewing and and really recreating, right? Paul says, he who is in Christ is a new creation. The Spirit's work is just as powerful, just as miraculous as the first time He created the heavens and the earth. So brothers and sisters, run to the cross of Christ. Don't be ashamed to be there because that's where every true believer must stand. Confess your sins. Find healing in the cross of Christ. Find renewal and find true, deep, and intimate life there at the cross of Christ. Amen. Let's respond by singing from Psalm 32, stanzas 1 through 5.